right. Well, we get a chance to uh, dive back into the scriptures this morning in 1 Corinthians. Uh, two weeks ago, we did Anthem Anywhere. And our, our Anthem Anywhere passage was 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And so if you were there, you got a chance to, to study that. And I just want to take a moment and kind of catch you up on where we're at in 1 Corinthians. Uh, the, the thing with this book... And honestly, this is kind of just a little bit of behind the scenes with teaching. In almost any book that we do, uh, it takes a little time to kind of find our rhythm, find our voice. What is this book saying, period? And then what is it saying to us as a church? Uh, what are we seeing God do in us as we study this together? And, and to be totally honest, we're still finding that. We're still asking the Lord, what do you have to say to us uh, through a book like 1 Corinthians? Uh, the reality is 1 Corinthians is a letter written uh, by Paul to people that he knows really well, uh, and he has to say some very hard things. How many of you guys have ever had to say hard things to a friend? Anybody ever had to say hard things to a friend before? All right. It's not fun, and you pray for the best. You hope that God uses uh, your word, your voice, your influence and encouragement to bring a productive outcome. Paul says very hard things to the Corinthians, and he says them very clearly. And we find in 2 Corinthians that Paul actually is really excited of the fruit that has come from the letter and from the transformation that's taking place in the lives of the Corinthians. So we get to see some of the end result that, that his letters, his ministry, his heart, and his passion are producing some change in them, and that's a really exciting thing. But what we get the benefit of as we go through 1 Corinthians is to be on the receiving end of hard conversations. Why are these things so important to Paul? Why are they so important to Jesus? Why are they so important to the Holy Spirit that they would be sealed in the scriptures for all time? Why is this so valuable that, that we need to understand it and know it and put it into practice in our lives? So to give you a little bit of background on where we've been at, Paul came into Corinth and he specifically approached the Corinthians with, uh, he uses the language of, uh, I didn't come to you with wisdom or eloquent speech. Like I didn't come trying to show you a, a fancy presentation. I didn't want you to get blown away by how good of a communicator I was. I didn't want you to get caught up in how complete my philosophy was, my logic was sound. I, you have tons of that going on. Paul will go into, like you have tons of philosophers wisdom spouters that come through Corinth and that try and get you to follow them. I didn't want to just be one in a chain of people trying to sell you on a philosophy, a way of life, things to think. I came to you, Paul says, deciding to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So his commitment was to come in in simplicity. I gave you just just the, the pure gospel, the raw, short version of the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified, because I wanted you to see that the gospel is the power of God. You needed to see that this isn't just me wowing you into the kingdom of God. And maybe just a, a question, you don't have to answer this or raise your hand. How many of you were, were wowed into the kingdom of God? Somebody was so persuasive in their speech that they won you over like, a, like an argument. That it's typically not the way that we find faith in Jesus. It happens. Sometimes people are won over by apologetics or by logic or by reason or something along those lines. But that's not usually the norm. The normal pathway for somebody to fall in love with Jesus is they see somebody else, 
somebody's life, somebody's, uh, the power of the Spirit at work in them or in somebody else, you see it play out and say, okay, I, I want that. And the answer then is Jesus. And so you start walking with Jesus. But very rarely do you sit down with somebody and they say, well, let me tell you how the Bible makes sense. Or let me tell you how dinosaurs fit into the Bible. Or let me tell you how whatever, you know, just whatever the reasonable, logical thing is that's blocking somebody from following Jesus, it's not crazy common. So Paul spends a lot of time doing this, all of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, saying, I'm not going to wow you with wisdom. And then he gets to verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2, and he says this, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So I chose to come simply to you. The beginning of our section today says, Yet... So Paul's about to go into a section that deals with how the wisdom of God is real and deep and present and there. Not only could it go toe-to-toe with any philosopher, with any wisdom, with anything that anybody's talking about, it will blow them all out of the water. But I chose to tell you the gospel in simplicity so that you would see the power of God. So if you have your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 6 through 16 and spend some time digging into these. All right, it says this. <clears throat> Yet among the mature, we do, not, uh, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written... What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. All right. So this might sound like and look like a complicated passage, and the reality is it does have some complexities to it. I want to walk through it as simply as possible, but just to give you a a, a high-level idea of what we're about to, to dig into, Paul has gone to extensive lengths to make sure that the Corinthians know, I didn't come to you with big wisdom. But this passage is him saying, but the wisdom of God is so big, you wouldn't even know how to handle it if I did. So he's basically saying, I came to you in simplicity, but I want you to know there is an endless well of wisdom in the gospel that is yet to be explored. And he actually goes in and talks to them about why he chose not to dive into that with them. So we're going to spend some time picking this apart. I hope you find it to be helpful. Uh, Let's start in verse 6. 
Paul says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. So Paul says, I didn't come to you with wisdom, but I do go to the mature with wisdom. Uh, maturity in Christ is an interesting concept in the Bible. Uh, it's something that we see over and over again. The idea is that every follower of Jesus is designed to grow. You're supposed to grow. To grow in your faith. To grow in your obedience. To grow in your generosity. To grow in your sense of mission. To grow in your understanding of the gospel and the way that it plays out in your life. All of these are areas and many more that we're supposed to grow and develop and become more and more like Jesus. So it is the expectation that we would actually walk towards maturity in Christ, that there would be a point where we would say, all right, I have grown to maturity. Now, maturity is an interesting concept. Uh, if I were to ask the question, how many of you think that you are a mature Christian? Uh, very few people tend to raise their hands for that. Very few people tend to think of themselves as mature because, to be honest, most of us see how far we have to go. And therefore we say, well, <laughs> I still have a long way to go. So I don't know what the line of maturity is, but I'm guessing I'm not there yet. It was like at the summit, we asked people just the question, not to answer out loud, but how many of you have an excellent prayer life? And again, most people would say, well, there's always room to grow in my prayer life. And so as a Christian culture, we've generally been a little bit afraid of saying, well, yeah, I'm a mature Christian. So besides the label, just for a moment, let's, let's see how the New Testament portrays maturity. This is in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I love this presentation of maturity or a lack thereof in the New Testament. I think it's really important. There are a couple of things about this that I think are really helpful. Uh, the first one is this. There is a full-blown expectation for though by now you ought to be teachers. The expectation by the author of Hebrews is that if you study the scriptures, they're not meant to just be studied endlessly and for nothing to come of that. As a follower of Jesus, part of your story is to take something in and then start to give something out to become somebody that teaches. Not everybody like me on a Sunday morning or even in a classroom context like Anthem Kids or Anthem Students, but we should all be able to articulate the gospel, to communicate the goodness of Jesus, always be prepared to give a defense. That kind of idea that we are growing in our understanding of the gospel to where we could communicate it. So that is very important. Another thing that I think is really helpful about this is the understanding of maturity that we have a part to play in that. So, Quick little question about maturity. Uh, in our biological lives, there's, uh, there's a biological maturity that goes on. We go through puberty and we become uh, a different kind of human being. We, come, we become sexually mature. There's like a, a biological maturity that goes on in us over the course of our lives. 
But then there's also this like cultural maturity, right? And the best way to understand that is the movie ratings. You've got G, PG, PG-13, R, NC-17, and on into the, uh, you know, XXX or whatever. And so you have this situation where as you go up through those ratings, you get to R and NC-17, and they say things like, for mature audiences only. And you look at something like that, and you just think, huh, that's interesting. Just because somebody has reached the age of 17, it means that they are mature in the eyes of the world and they can now watch that movie and not deal with the consequences of the content or something along those lines. So here's the question. Just because somebody gets older, are they also more mature? No. no. <laughs> All right. We've seen enough people that have struggled to find a maturing process to get, as they get older, and they find themselves continuing to struggle to grow up, be responsible, get jobs, move out, whatever the, the start a family, whatever the thing is, uh, culture struggles to mature, to grow up, to develop. Well, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that we have a part to play in our own maturity. Look at what he says at the end. He says, for, uh, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. Part of the maturing of a follower of Jesus is to grow in disciplining yourself in understanding how to live out the way of Jesus. Practice it. To walk in righteousness, to grow in prayer, to grow in worship, to grow in mission. These are things that become increasingly important for you as you walk in your life with Jesus. Uh, for me as a, a young guy growing up, one of the first things I did that really kind of clicked me over into a follower of Jesus that felt like I could do something with that was when I was in high school, we used to go on Mexico mission trips. Uh, thank you, Azusa Pacific University. They would host our, our Mexico mission trip every spring break and we would, we would go down to border towns and we would do VBS and minister all week long, that kind of thing. That's where I learned to play guitar. That's where I started singing. My Spanish became impeccable. Um, not actually, but enough to be able to find out where the, the Takis were and things like that. So, the importance of that moment in my life was that I got so comfortable telling kids about Jesus that we would drive home and our youth pastor would say things like, all right, so what's it look like to do that back home? And everybody's first reaction is like, no, no, no. No, we only do that in Mexico. That's, that's where that's easy. That's where we can actually tell people about Jesus. This is like my friends. They'll judge me. They'll think things of me. And it was something to, to, to work on. I got to practice it and discipline myself and know how to let the words come out of my mouth to where I could then start applying that into the life that I was living back home. It was something that helped shape in me the ability to speak. So those things, they, they start shaping us and growing us. So back to Corinthians. Paul writes and says this, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now there are some very wrong ways to take this passage. Uh, this is a passage that many cults build their, uh, their layers of understanding off of. 
level one, level two, level three, you know, you kind of get this sense, even uh, with something like Mormonism, where they'll, they'll tell you a certain amount of doctrine until you get to, through a certain rite and ritual, and then they'll tell you more doctrine, then you get through the next rite and ritual, and more doctrine, next rite and ritual, more doctrine, and they reveal in increasing measure the doctrines or the things that they believe as you go through the practices of the church. Uh, you could say the same thing about Scientology, although it's not Christian in any way, shape, or form, but they have levels of understanding that they invite you into, and for Scientology, you buy your way up to the next level. You pay money to be able to get to the next level of understanding of what they're trying to teach you. And many people have looked at a passage like this and seen Christianity as having some secret, hidden wisdom that only certain levels of Christians get to access. And that is not what Paul is saying at all, not a little bit, not in any way. We know this for a couple of reasons. First, go to Ephesians chapter 3. Sorry, that was really loud in the microphone. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4. Paul writes this. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul's not writing saying the mystery is something that I have and I will tell you for 99.95. He's saying the mystery is this, and he gives it. To everybody, whoever wants to read it, he starts talking about the mystery of God. So here's how we understand this. Paul talks to the Corinthians and says, look, among the mature we do impart wisdom. It's a different kind of wisdom though. It's not the wisdom like what the world has, like what you guys get excited about when people come through town and tell you all of their philosophies. This is a wisdom that God decreed before the foundations of the earth. It's a, it's a wisdom that's from God. That's the idea of it being secret and hidden. It's from God. It's not obvious. Not everybody grasps it. He goes on to talk about, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So if Jesus enters into humanity and everybody sees it and they're just like, that's the Messiah, son of the living God, he's here to bring salvation, they're not going to send him to the cross because that's God in the flesh. If they knew it, if it was obvious and apparent, then there would be no crucifixion. But it wasn't obvious. It wasn't apparent. There was a hiddenness to it in that not everyone can understand what God is up to. Then Paul goes on to quote Isaiah, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine, what God has prepared for those who love him. What is in store for us is so big and so rich and so deep and so important that we have to understand that, that there is a never-ending well. There's a never-ending ocean of wisdom, of knowledge, of who God is that we can dive into. We can't even imagine the fullness of what God has for us. Verse 10, Paul says this. He says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So basically what Paul's saying is, look, as human beings, we cannot know the fullness of God. Like, it's too, he's too big you would not be able to academically wrap your head around God. You can't do it. He's too much. He's too big. It's too hard to understand grace. Think about the debate about free will and predestination that's gone on for 1,500 years. 
pages upon pages upon pages. You could go to Oxford, you could go to Edinburgh, you could go to every major university that has Christian roots, and there would be dissertation after dissertation written about free will versus predestination. And here we are, 2,000 years post-Jesus, and we're still like, you know, it's kind of mysterious how those things work together. There's so much depth to who God is, it's hard for any person to wrap their heads around it, but the Spirit is different. The Spirit of God searches the depths of God. He knows the fullness of God. Paul goes on to say, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? This is an example. Paul's helping you understand something. You know you better than anyone else. I know me better than anyone else. Right? I know that I've written probably four and a half, maybe five movies. I've never actually written them. I've never gotten them down on paper, but they're up here. I've written them. They've, they're, they're there, full scripts. They're ready to roll, ready for print. Uh, you wouldn't know that I've started a hundred businesses. Uh, never one of them has made it past the end of my imagination, but I have. I've started about a hundred businesses, done at least nine Shark Tank pitches. Uh, they're all here, right? There's a lot that's going on in here that never really makes its way out unless I happen to be preaching this message on a Sunday morning. There's a lot to me, and nobody knows me but to use Paul's language, the, the spirit of me, the inner person that I, that I am, the, the conversation that I have with myself, the, the dreams, the memories, the imagination, the future, all of those things that are going on in, inside of me, nobody knows that except for what he calls uh, the spirit of a person, just you. You know you like nobody else knows you. Well, who knows God other than God? Nobody. But the spirit of God knows the depths of God. And then Paul goes on to say, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So here's what, by the way, this is how we know there's no levels of access as a Christian and why it would be silly to think that, you know, once you get past level two, then you get to level three and level four and level five. Because even though Paul says we have the less mature and the more mature, and we'll tell one thing to the less mature and one thing to the more mature. That was a ministry discernment decision on Paul's part. God freely gives us all things, and the Spirit helps us understand them. So while Paul had to make a, a discernment call with Corinth, we decided not to come and bring all of the wisdom of God to you. We held back. We just showed you a piece of it. Jesus and him crucified because we wanted you to see the power of God and we didn't want you to fall in love with us. We didn't want you to get so wowed by what we were telling you that you actually loved us instead of Jesus. So we made that decision. But he's saying about God, God has given us his spirit to interpret the deep things of God, which he freely gives us. God is not withholding anything about himself from any one of us. He's not trying to keep himself hidden. He's not trying to limit access. There's nothing about God that, the, that he is keeping off limits. The Spirit is there to help us see and know the things of God. He keeps going. He says, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. All right. So let's take, a, let's take a quick pause and talk about the objective of a follower of Jesus, what Paul, what Jesus, what the Bible, what, what God wants for a follower of Jesus. God wants you to experience the fullness of who he is. He desires that. 
He wants you to dig deep into who he is, to know his wisdom and experience it. And there is uh, a reality to maturity, that as we grow in maturity, we grow in understanding, we're able to receive more of what God has to give us. But I want you to see firsthand what Paul's prayer is for all Christians in every place. So go over to Ephesians chapter 3 again. We're going to read verses 14 through 21. We'll be here for a couple minutes, so it's worth turning over there if you have your Bibles and you want to do that. All right. This is Paul's prayer. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So Paul's saying, this is my prayer. This is why I go to prayer. That according to the riches of his glory. Now we're just going to kind of parse this one out. God is rich in glory. Like think the richest you've ever seen. I don't know if you grew up with Scrooge McDuck diving into the pool of gold coins. Think the richest you've ever dreamt of or thought of. And the glory of God, it's endless. His wealth in glory is unparalleled. It's, you can't even track it. It's so massive. And Paul prays that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you, or that he may grant you, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So here's the, here's the prayer. That the spirit of God would be preparing you for this momentous reality. That's what Paul's praying, that according to the riches of his glory, the Spirit of God would prepare you so that, verse 17, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So the thing that we need strength for, the thing that we need the Spirit of God to prepare us for is Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. And then he goes on to say that you, being rooted and grounded in love, so you, you have an understanding of the love of Christ, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is Paul's prayer for every believer. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Again, we know that secret hidden wisdom isn't just for some believers because Paul's prayer is that you may comprehend with all all the saints, with every follower of Jesus, that all of you would comprehend together what is the height and depth and breadth and length and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Uh, so I want you to think just for a moment on a clear non-rainy day, you look out at the islands. Uh, we're not looking at Catalina, but imagine Catalina. It's down a little farther south. It's 26 miles from the coast of California out to Catalina. I want you to imagine swimming those 26 miles. So just picture yourself kind of diving in, getting past the breakers, and you just start swimming, right? I'm a breaststroke guy. It's easier than freestyle because my bad shoulder. So that's my, this is my picture right here. Uh, how many of you are ocean people? Raise your hand if you're ocean people. All right, how many of you are not ocean people? Raise your hand if you, okay, good. I got an even split in the room. All right, so forgive me if this causes anxiety. So you're swimming out into the ocean, and I want you to just picture how deep that water is, how many things are swimming under you at any given moment, how massively far up the coast that water goes, down the coast that water goes, and you've still got 25 and 7 eighths miles to go before you get to Catalina, and that's the islands that we can see. Then I want you to think about swimming to Hawaii. 
Nobody. There are like 12 people that can swim to Catalina. There's nobody that can swim to Hawaii. Like that's so far beyond anything that any of us could ever do. That's so massive. And that's like a third of the way to Japan or Korea or Australia. It's like that ocean is so massive, so deep, so wide. And Paul's saying that doesn't even scratch the surface of the love of Christ and how deep and how far into that every single one of you will go. You will never stop exploring the fullness of the love of Christ in your life. When you come into the kingdom of God, when you say yes to following Jesus, you begin a journey that you will never stop. You'll never stop growing and maturing and exploring and finding more depth and more reality and more of what God has for you. Those are things that you can, that you can paths that you can walk down, threads that you can pull for the rest of your life and you will not see the end of the bigness of God. And Paul's prayer is that every follower of Jesus would experience the bigness of God's love and his grace, and his mercy, and his kindness. So back to 1 Corinthians. Paul says, We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. This is a bit of a challenging statement. Uh, For those of you that really like logic, you really like your arguments to make sense, this this can feel circular circular logic. Uh, If you're filled by the Spirit, you get it. If you're not filled by the Spirit, you don't get it. You need the Spirit to get the Spirit kind of a thing. It's like, all right, so basically you're selling me on if I'm in, then I'll get even more, but if I'm out, then I'll never get it. Again, it feels very hard for us to wrap our heads around. I want you to hear what Paul's saying. He's saying that as natural people, the cross does not make sense to us. It's not a logical form of salvation. 2,000 years ago, a man died. He was actually killed for his crimes. 2,000 years ago, a man was killed for his crimes. And as followers of Jesus, we see that as something way more than this uh, historic moment, a blip on history, where some guy that started a micro-revolution in a very small country that was part of the Roman Empire happened to die on a cross and then it went away. We actually look at that as a very different thing. Well, that wasn't just a man. Jesus was God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. And it wasn't just a blip on the historical radar. It was actually the the promise from thousands of years before that God had promised and reiterated and reiterated and reiterated and reiterated and fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And then from that moment, it wasn't just death on a cross, but a resurrection. Jesus being brought back to life and in that moment declaring victory over Satan's sin and death and leading all of his followers into a resurrection life, a promise that death is not the end, that the curse has been broken, that you don't have to die. Destruction and pain and eternal separation from the presence of God is no longer your destiny you can choose to follow Jesus and experience a completely different reality. That's our understanding. But for somebody that is not spiritual, to use Paul's language, 
It's not spiritual. That is foolishness. It doesn't make sense to them. Now to talk about the spiritual language, so Paul says that uh, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Uh, New Testament commentator David Garland puts it this way. The natural person analyzes divine truth with his or her limited earthbound faculties and not, surprisingly, finds this truth wanting. Only one with spiritual perception can examine beyond the visible evidence and attest that the foolishness of God plus the weakness of God equals the power of God. If the message does not come with authenticating signs or sophisticated wisdom, it whizzes right by those dependent only on natural faculties. So Jesus promises the Spirit of God. In fact, he even says, John 14, 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. So God understands that in our limited view, in our limited vista, we, we're going to have a hard time seeing the spiritual reality of Jesus. We're going to have a hard time seeing how the gospel makes sense. How does a guy that died 2,000 years ago satisfy the guilt that I carry for my own sin and make it possible for me to spend eternity with Christ? How is that even a reality? And we find that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to help us understand. This is what's commonly referred to in theological circles as regeneration. That the Spirit comes to regenerate us, to make it possible for us to wrap our heads around, to understand the depths of the gospel. That God is at work and he is shaping a story in us that allows us to see things a little differently. But the natural person will not accept the things of the Spirit of God. When Paul refers to the natural person, he's often referring to somebody that does not have the Spirit of God. And when he's referring to a spiritual person, he is often referring to somebody that does have the Spirit of God. We are going to find out as we get into chapter 3 that for the Corinthians, he's using those terms slightly differently. Uh, that a spiritual person is somebody that, is not, that not only has the Holy Spirit, but is obeying the Holy Spirit. And that a natural person could be somebody that is simply walking in their natural flesh. They're choosing to let their flesh lead them and be the thing that defines how they make decisions. You see that in, uh, it's so hard sometimes to cut off passages and not just teach the entire book. But chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So right there you get this picture that Paul's talking about it and like, all right, spiritual people doesn't mean all Christians. It means people that are walking by the Spirit. And he basically says to the Corinthians, I, I couldn't treat you that way. I couldn't treat you that way. You were following the flesh. You're being disunified. You're fighting with each other. You're choosing human teachers and apostles to follow and, and making camps around them. Like you're, you're, you're not living life in the Spirit, so I couldn't treat you as spiritual people. He's basically saying... So there are two closing verses that are a little bit challenging to wrap our heads around. So for verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. Again, you can take this wildly out of context if you're not careful. Here's what this means. The spiritual person or the person walking by the Spirit, that word judges uh, could also be translated discerns or analyzes. 
So a person filled by, walking by the Spirit, judges, discerns, analyzes all things. Basically what that means is as followers of Jesus, filled by the Spirit, we see the world differently. You're looking through uh, a different lens to see the world. We've talked about this a ton over the last year, year and a half, two years, that we no longer regard people according to the flesh. We're not simply seeing somebody as flesh and blood that's frustrating or offensive or making me angry or I'm impatient with them. We now see them the way that Jesus sees them. As a, as a soul who's broken and tainted by sin but loved to the nth degree, and God desires to restore right relationship with them. And then he invites us to go and express forgiveness and mercy and kindness and patience and self-control to people that have no business receiving those things from us. So we see people not according to the flesh. We see the world not according to the flesh. So God loves this city. He wants to restore this city. He wants to drive back to himself. God loves this nation. He wants to restore this nation. He wants to drive back to himself. God loves this people group. He loves this language. He wants them back to himself. This is God's heart, his desire, his passion. And we start to see the world through that lens. The spiritual person judges all things, discerns, sees differently but is himself to be judged by no one. Now again, if you're grabbing your flat bill cap that says only God can judge me, you've missed the point. That is not what we're talking about here. I don't know why the flat bill, it just makes sense in my head, but that's the hat. We're not wearing that hat. That's not the point here. The point of what we're talking about, the spiritual person can be judged by no one. I want you to think of what Paul's been getting at. A natural person is going to look at a follower of Jesus as a fool because they have a hard time seeing the gospel as valid. Uh, there's an author, David Garland, I already mentioned him once. He says it this way. Paul could mean that the unspiritual person who misjudges the cross as foolishness also misjudges believers as fools. Their judgments are invalid. I don't know how many of you gave your lives to Jesus uh, and you came from families whose parents, uh, your parents don't walk with Jesus. But oftentimes in that relationship, parents consider their kids to be fools, swept up in something, caught up in a, in a cult, caught up in uh, you know, some kind of activity. What's going on with you? Why are you changing? Why are you doing this? It's folly. Maybe you came to Jesus later in life and all of your friends are like, did you get smacked by aliens? Like, oh, what is going on with you? Why are you acting this way? Why are you believing these things? This isn't who you used to be. I don't know if that was your experience, but that's the reality for a lot of people. For somebody that is uh, not a follower of Jesus, being a follower of Jesus does not make sense. It's not logical. It's not the wisdom of this world. So if somebody is brilliant, intelligent, and, and really capable mentally, they're not going to naturally come to the conclusion that the gospel is the way to eternity, to the kingdom of God, to all things right and holy. Doesn't mean that we don't have reason. Doesn't mean we don't have intellect. In fact, Paul says we can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with anybody. We can reason with the best of them. And he did often. With Corinth, he chose not to. But with, with Athens, he chose to reason. And he went toe-to-toe -to -toe in the Areopagus with the philosophers of the age. And, and the gospel holds up. But with Corinth, he wanted to show them this is the power. You need to see the power of God at work. 
And so I want you to understand that when Paul writes this, he's trying to encourage his friends to know that what the life that you're living is not going to make sense to people outside, and the more you dive into it, the more it is going to make sense to you. The more you walk in faithful obedience to Jesus, the more you will find of his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his goodness. The depths of God are opened up to you. The last line. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Again, only the Spirit knows God himself. But we have the mind of Christ. This is a fascinating line. It's a line that's been rolling through my head, not just this week, but honestly, uh, Kristen and I have talked about this verse for two decades. What does it mean to have the mind of Christ? How does that shape us? What does that, what does that look like? What are we growing into to where we have the mind of Christ? It just, it just kind of rings in my head. This is a theologian named Sigurd Grindheim. I love that name. It's just so good. If any of you are pregnant, Sigurd Maybe a middle name, Grindheim, solid. All right, he writes this. He's a theologian, uh, naturally. His name's Sigurd. Uh, his name, uh, he writes this, not his name. He says, to be spiritual is to have apprehended the word of the cross in such a way that it has transformed the entire existence of the believer into its image. A cruciform life, a life characterized by self-sacrificing love and where power is manifest through weakness. I want you to think about a couple of things in this. That phrase, cruciform life, again, the mind of Christ, basically what Sigurd is saying is that as we come to faith in Jesus and we grow in maturity, we are starting to see the world through the lens of the cross. What is the cross here to accomplish? What is God doing through the cross? How has he transformed my life through the cross? That's where we start to see our own identity, our own thought patterns, the words that are coming out of our mouths, they are shaped by the cross. That's a cruciform life, a life shaped by the cross. And as followers of Jesus, that's our destination. That's where we are going. And so Paul writes and he says, but we have the mind of Christ. And he's not saying that like we, like the apostles, you guys are just the, the little people and we, the apostles, have the mind of Christ. This is one where Paul steps in and says, we, the saints, have the mind of Christ. He has given us the Spirit of God who searches the depths of God, who reveals the things of God to us and interprets them. He gives it to us freely. And so we start to understand more and more and more and more as we go on. There's some very basic realities of salvation. Somebody could preach the gospel to you and say, Jesus died for your sins, and we're like, whoa, I got a lot of sins. I need somebody to die for him, and I don't want it to be me. I'm in. Like, the gospel could be that basic. But the reality of the atonement could go so much deeper than that. Why did Jesus need to die for my sins? What sins did Jesus die for? How did Jesus live a life that enabled him to die for my sins? What exactly happened on that cross that this great exchange that the Bible talks about happened where my sin was put on Jesus and his righteousness was put on me? And why would God do that? Why would he take my sin in exchange for his righteousness to where now he calls me holy and beloved? That's what he calls me. Why would he do that? And how did that happen? 
And when we take communion and we celebrate the body of Jesus that was given up for us and the blood of Jesus that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins and that, that blood is the blood of the new covenant. So there's a new relationship with Jesus at the helm, his blood spilled to make a blood covenant relationship with God the Father. You could dive into that and not stop for months, years, years. Sanctification. Paul writes, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You could pull that thread for decades. Have you seen some of the books that have been written? Anybody do any theological work in your life and just your average theological book stack, it just gets bigger and bigger. You walk into somebody's library and there's just thousands of books and you're like, have you read these? And they're like, no. (laughs) Because nobody reads all the books on their bookshelf. But the reality of how deep we could go into God, it is endless, endless. We haven't even gotten close, you guys. We have the mind of Christ and that the Spirit of God is with us and he searches all things.